Hello everyone, this is Sakib Hosh on the show. Welcome back to Tennis with an Accent. Uh, try to get Matt Zemek for this one uh, because we have a special guest joining uh, from UK and between me and our guest and Matt, the time zones were three different ones and this would have been a tough task even for Matt who's never, who's never said no for this kind of stuff before. So a rain check is totally accepted. But now moving on to the guests. Ravi Uba returns to the podcast for the third time. Really no introduction needed. Uh, a pretty known voice on tennis Twitter and tennis in general. Uh, does a lot of freelance work, contributes for CNN, but lately also doing play-by-play. So on that note, Ravi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be back. So you're a busy man. So just elaborate on the play-by-play aspect. Is this something new? Do you enjoy it? A unique challenge? Different than writing? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. I mean, uh, I've been doing more so that in the last actually 10 years, doing more of the play-by-play or or commentating, if you want to call it that, um, in TV and doing some radio. So doing for different world feeds and uh, places. So a lot of fun and still doing the writing. So it's, it's, it's a nice combination. And hey, we get to watch a lot of tennis. So very, very lucky person. Yeah, absolutely. And do you do play-by-play in a team or you do sometimes solo matches? And is this uh, are the two different in terms of you know what a commentator is doing? Yeah, I, I, I do both, and it is a bit different because I think, uh, you know, if, if you're doing it solo, obviously you don't have anybody to really bounce your ideas off of. And you're kind of, I think, uh, directing the traffic, doing the, I think, the traditional roles of, of a lead commentator while trying to add in some of the analyst stuff, you know, like dissecting rallies and talking about technical stuff, uh, you know, in match situations. So it is it is different, obviously, working solo than in... Um, different kind of prep? I mean, uh, going um, than writing? Um, it's, it is, it is different. I mean, I think, um, I I know I would do a lot of prep for both in any case ahead of matches. So it's similar, but, um, it's different in the sense that, for example, if I'm doing a particular tournament for commentating, you know, I will look at what a player has done at that tournament in in the past years. Uh, you know, we look at head to heads very extensively, uh, digging up stats on those head to heads, not just about, you know, winning and losing and looking at, you know, what, what the scores are, but digging in and seeing if there are any themes. I like doing that in, in any particular matches. Uh, it's similar. And I think one really helps the other. Um, so um, it's good to be doing both, really. And, um, you know, you notice things when you're watching a match and commentating a match. Your, your eyes have to be a bit sharper on certain things. Where, whereas when you're writing, especially, it's interesting, Saka, because when you're writing and writing on deadline, towards the end of the match, I find, okay, you know, I, I got to, I'm, I'm typing away and you're kind of glancing at the screen and kind of sometimes hoping nothing, <laughs> nothing interesting or nothing different happens. So you can kind of stick to your story sometimes. But uh, it is a different thing, yeah. All right. So. Yeah, that's I think that's definitely good stuff because all of us follow tennis at very close quarters and you know picking up uh, on the tricks of the trade for someone like you who's actively living uh, these two two roles is fascinating. But yeah, let's not shy away uh, from the real topic. I urge you, you know, to join us. It you know, and we're trying to get you for the last few days because Maria Sharapova has indeed called time. Uh, that was almost a week ago. The announcement came. Uh, so again, quite a complex car- uh, career she's led. You know, very polarizing figure in a ride, very famous figure, one of the most famous tennis players. Period on both tours. So a lot can be said. Uh, so wh- how, how do you want to tackle it? Do you want to go to the complexity first, or do you want to go the, to the player first? You know, winning you know five majors, winning on clay, which was never a natural surface for her. Great transformation there. I mean, a lot of topics to accommodate. You know, you can't measure a career. Even in giving opinion exercise, say in thirty-five minutes. Yeah. So, 
So let's try. Do you, what do you want to tackle first? Yeah, I, I think what I would say is what sticks out to me, the first thing, you know, when I think about Maria Sharapova, and then we can delve into, into different topics. And the first thing I think about is how great of a competitor she has been in tennis. Uh, one of the best competitors of her generation, one of the best competitors of the last few decades in the world of tennis, um, gone on with things on the court. I remember that clenched fist when she's returning serve, and I put that out on Twitter, then somebody replied justifiably, uh, you know, also slapping her thigh before returning serve, um, you know, walking back to the base, to the, to the backboard between serves, for example, um, just trying to reset before every point. That's what I'm going to remember about Sharapova is the way that she really conducted herself on the court and how much of a great competitor she was. And I also think, you touched on it, Sakib, French Open, um, her from, from, not liking to playing on clay, you know, that famous quote, being a cow on ice, as she put it, uh, or, or very similar in her words, to then winning the French Open and winning it twice, uh, remarkable turnaround. And I, I have to say, too, that for most of the last decade, probably, um, you know, she's been competing with a, a banged up shoulder, with, a, you know, a surgically repaired shoulder. And as she has since said, after she retired, you know, playing matches was a real struggle for her because physically, you know, her body was her body was letting her down. So, I mean, those are the things that I remember first. Obviously, you think about the image, you think about what she's done outside the game. She's a player who has certainly transcended the sport of tennis, and that can only be good for tennis. You have to factor in also, because it's indisputable, uh, the ban. You know, the ban, um, obviously, was it's a bit of a blemish on her career. It did happen. Um, you know, she wished it didn't happen, but it did happen. Um, so you factor in all these things into the mix, and it, it, it adds to a very, very interesting career, a career that started, where, you know, started in, in, in Russia, really, and then coming to Florida, and you know, her on-court results were, were fantastic thereafter. Yeah, again, um, I'm no expert on, uh, on the player technique. Uh, I know she came as a teenager uh, to, uh, to United States, but a lot of the tennis that she plays resembles, I think, uh, American brand of tennis. Uh, I know we make a bigger deal of this brand of tennis on the men's side because the American women have been so successful. Uh, do you agree that Sharapova, even though she still plays for Russia, and again, I could be very off on this, uh, do you agree that uh, her ground strokes and the point construction or the big babe tennis, as it was termed by Mary Carrillo, uh, you think it's more Americanized or you think you see enough uh, uh, Russian tennis in her? Again, I think um, I, th- I think we have to say... Uh, being, you know, trained at the Baltieri Academy, now the IMG Academy, that obviously tells you that most of the game is coming from, the, you know, the U.S. side because that's where she learned a lot of the game. You know, Nick Baltieri was her mentor and he's helped with so, so many different players. So her, her actual game, the way that she played, yeah, I think it came from the U.S. I don't think that's, you know, I don't think anybody would be feel contentious in, in, in anybody saying that. I think something that Alex Kennan talked about the dad of Sophia Kennan at the Australian Open because Kennan, another player who went from, um, you know, who has ties, of course, to, to Russia, then they moved to Florida at a young age. He, he talked about the, the grit that he felt, the internal grit that maybe players from Russia have. So when you combine that with the way that her game was honed and, and raised in the U.S., it led to, to quite a player. And, and, you know, the shoulder issue she had, um, I think we remember that quite a lot because it happened last, you know, 10 years, you know, she hit a lot of double falls in, in certain matches, but the brand of tennis you're talking about, about the big serve and the big ground strokes, 
Yeah, yeah, that's something we're we're accustomed to seeing from from a lot of the the U.S. players, be it on the men's or the or the women's side. Yeah, and then uh, going back to your earlier response uh, from the you know buffet of topics was winning French Open. I think that does remain very impressive because she didn't really have good results on the surface, and then she was managed to not win once but twice at Roland Garros, and I think that's quite a feat. Uh, okay. Yep. Where would you rank that? Uh, I mean, does that really elevate her level? You know, of course, Serena Williams is a, is a league of, of her own. And uh, for longevity, Venus is right up there and won five Wimbledons. Where, where does that achievement, in your view, put Sharapova in the list of open era? Or let's even do the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, where does she rank? I mean, behind who? And it, it, it's an opinion. It, it, you know, these well, are not well, factual things, yeah. yeah. No, she's, she's definitely behind... Serena, um, you know, you mentioned Venus. Uh, I'd put her behind Venus. You got to recall that Venus has won more Grand Slams. She hasn't won one in a long time, so might, we might, some might forget that actually Venus has won more Grand Slams than Marie, but that is the case. Um, so I think I'd put her behind those those two particular players, and among active players, um, you know, she's kind of behind them, but right at the top behind them uh, of players who've retired of late or the, the last decade, you know, Justine Ene, where would you put Ene? Henin was somebody who won all the Grand Slams except for Wimbledon. She had a, you know, just couldn't get get that one done in terms of winning, winning that one. So that's that's what makes Maria's accomplishment, I think, even more remarkable about winning all the majors. You know, she's, she's, she's done the career Grand Slam. So she won two French and then Wimbledon, we know, US Open, Australian Open. But I, I definitely put her behind. There's, there's no question she's, she's behind Serena. I mean, nobody would... That's just a no-brainer. You know, yeah, Serena's you know, not even the equation when we rank. So. Venus, Venus behind Venus um, as well. And then these things are so subjective. So you put people into the mix like a, you know, like a, like a Kleisters, like a, like a Hennen, other players who won. Angus. Angus, yeah, other players who won. I was just going to say, yeah, other players who won Grand Slam titles of late uh, recently. I, I, I really like the game of, of Lindsay Davenport and how she, she struck the ball. It was very, it was, it was kind of a similar game. Not identical, but a similar game to to Sharapova. So um, yeah, I think those types of players. Um, you know, Lee Na was a, a really special type of player because um, what she did for tennis, not just the sport itself, but you know, tennis in Asia, tennis in, in China was is absolutely remarkable. So when you think about what a player has done and their legacy and their um, you know what they're leaving the game, it's more about it's more than just their the Grand Slam. So I think that elevates. Sharapova a little bit more because of the, the fact that she was able to transcend the, the world of tennis. And I think it was for a period of around 10 years, if not more, where she was named by Forbes as the, 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 um, you know, the richest female athlete in the world. That was because of all the sponsorships that she had, you know, outside tennis. So, um, yeah, she's, she's, she is one of those players who is going to leave the game. You look at not only what she's done on the court and the grand slams, but also, uh, you know, outside the court and her recognition outside the world of tennis. And I don't know how close uh, as a writer are you to tennis Twitter. I'm sure tennis Twitter does magnify uh, the tennis community of fans, especially the diehard fans. And of course, there are a lot of lot of fans out there, but there's a lot, lot of diehard fans who just follow each and every player's movement. And, you know, there's a fan cam. So do, did you find, as as a fan of the sport, Sharapo as a very polarizing figure? And then I'll come to Ravi, the journalist. I mean, uh, she's extremely popular, but again, there's a set of fans, uh, and you, you only have to happen to be on Twitter to realize, you know, how divided this world is, and it happens yeah. across both tours. 
Oh yes, I mean, listen, that's uh, that's social media for you. There, there's no getting around it. Uh, people have opinions. They're they're voicing their opinions. They are polarizing. When it comes to Sharapova, there's no getting around that. Um, you know, I hear comments about in the locker room. I remember speaking to to, <laughs> to Nick Baltieri uh, a couple of years ago on the phone and just asking about Sharapova. It was actually around the time that she was doing her press conference to announce that she had, you know, she had tested positive for meldonium. And um, nobody knew at the time, because I was chatting with him before, but we knew there was this big announcement coming. And we're all thinking, what is it going to be? You know, what is it going to be? So you know, just thinking ahead, plotting ahead, I was asking Nick, you know, if this is the end for, you know, what's her, her reputation, her legacy? What about comments you hear sometimes that maybe in the locker room, you know, is she if she asked fairly some other players, and he, his comments to me were something, something to the effect of, well, you know, you need to be really. I mean, uh, you know, she does her thing and, and leaves. Um, you know, she, she's very, very professional and does what she needs to do, what she what she feels she needs to do. Um, so, I mean, she, no wonder she's polarizing for that aspect, but also more so with the ban because there have been people on social media. I've read the comments, you know, look what she's done after the ban as opposed to prior to the ban. Um I think a lot of that for me, just for me, um, is having to do with the shoulder problems that she's had um, because she hasn't really been healthy thereafter um, since, she's, since she's really come back. Maybe there was a, a little brief spell where she was healthy, but you, you just look at the number of matches she's played um, since coming back. And uh, I don't think, you know, that that's enough for a player to get into a rhythm and start winning matches. Um, and fair enough, some might say, well, is that linked? To the fact that, you know, she wasn't taking meltonium, I said I'm no scientist, but just reading up a little bit on it, I don't necessarily think so. So I think for me, the problem she's had physically-wise, the shoulder problem, um, that was a, just such a massive, massive issue for her since she, since she came back. And even someone who covers tennis professionally, you know, you do travel a fair bit, a lot. You've been doing this for quite some time. Uh, how big of a, I don't know how to even, you know, repackage this uh, aspect. How big of a news was that this bigger name gets caught in between all this? Because we always hear all these hearsay stories. They're a backroom, you know, wrist slap on the wrist kind of a thing. And, you know, the game protects. It's not only ten- tennis, but they're fans and there's like speculation about each sport. So she has to be one of the biggest name in all sport to have tested uh, positive of a banned substance. And how does, what's your reaction? How does this kind of a negligence go at the top level where there is no... Uh, limits on, you know, the money that these players have, the PR, you know, the, the entourage they have, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I can no. understand someone going to a random pharmacy and getting caught up who is a player who's buying his or her own, you know, meds. But for someone yeah. like Sharapova, this is just, uh, I know it's old news. Uh, what was your reaction? What's the media reaction, you know? Yeah, I mean, people I'm, have I'm, talked about this. Sorry. I can say what, what I was, but, but first of all, you know, when you think of this, some of the players who've had these infractions, doping infractions, you know, there have been some big names in the past. You know, Marin Cilic, uh, yeah, um, you know, went on to win after that the U.S. Open. Uh, it was it was a smaller ban. Um, you know, Mariano Puerta. Uh, and in Cilic's case, uh, you know, essentially um, what, the, what the panel said was basically, you know, he didn't intend to, you know, to enhance the performance. And that was deemed to be the case. And that's why it was, it was a small ban. Puerta, a bit more complex um, for Sharapova, you know, it was, it was, it was an oversight by, by belief, you know, the, the way the story went by her, her agent, a longtime agent and Max, who I think just, um, forgot to inform Maria about, you know, that this, this is, this drug is now, uh, off limits, can't take it anymore. And that's the case. And, you know, didn't know about it. It was, 
um, in her system. And that's how she basically tested positive um, for it. And for me, you know, the first thing I think of, especially for a player uh, with such a massive reputation um, and so much happening outside of the court, this is just my opinion, but there's no way in heck she would have uh, attempted to, to cheat anybody by doing this. It was for me simply an oversight. Uh, this drug was legal up until, you know, the point where, you know, she she was caught for it. It wasn't. It was a matter of months. You know, she this, this drug wasn't banned for years and years and years. Then it became banned. And it was just, again, her not knowing that it, it reached that situation. Um, so... I, I look at that. That's that's what I think of, because had she you know, read the legislation and read the new um, new regulations as related to meldonium, then, um, you know, this wouldn't have happened. It's, it's, it's as simple as that. There's no question it would have happened. So, I mean, that's my take on it immediately. And, um, you know, what was different about what happened on that day was that she really went on the front foot, really took it into her own hands to say, I'm going to come out and announce it myself rather than have the news, um, you know, come out by the normal method, which is an email that we all receive from, from the, the ITF uh, saying that, you know, players tested positive. So um, that was my reaction. I think it was still shocked when it, when it happened that day, because again, just reflecting on the, on the past story and chatting to Nick, I think many of us thought that maybe she was going to, um, maybe she was going to announce her retirement that day. Yeah, definitely. That's a, that's a thought that occurred to most. Like she's calling it time back then. So let me deviate slightly, you know, because you are in the you know reporting community for tennis. So uh, I know when a Sharapova or Chilich get uh, you know suspended or you know found guilty of using something that's that's banned. Uh, but is this more of a recurrence? I mean, for listeners here, uh, do do WADA or like the tennis governing bodies? Uh, find results and do players get suspended on a regular basis may not be big names is that something that just you know i'm sure in this day of twitter and you know social media nothing gets uh nothing gets missed but overall when people are just following the stars and the big picture and some people just follow the sport how much of a regular uh offense is this that you know there's someone always on this list have you followed that closely or uh i mean we we do get these emails about players who get ban and i wouldn't say they're regular i wouldn't say they're semi-regular i would say they're intermittent uh in most cases the majority of cases they're players that you know we we probably have never heard of you know very very much lower rank players um so um it, it doesn't happen often i mean and then you have to peel back the layers and ask the question why doesn't it happen often is it because the players are essentially clean. Is it because there are not enough resources to test these players? And I think that's a, that's an argument that has been made. Um, but I, I would go with what I think what guys like, you know, uh, Rafa said in the past that he feels, you know, it's essentially um, a clean sport. Uh, I don't know, for example, Andy in the past, he, Andy Murray's talked about, you know, wanting more, um, more kind of be thrown at this and, and to, to test players. So, um, I, we can only go with the facts. And the facts are we do get these emails probably intermittently about the players who do test positive for, uh, you know, for substances. And the, they're not the, the, you know, the big, big names or even the more established um, established players. So I think that, you know, that's that's just the way that all we can go by is the facts. Other, otherwise, we'd be just speculating. No, fair enough. So let's focus uh, 
the topic, the conversation to Maria, the player in the press room. So as someone, you know, who covers sport professionally, once again, I've said it twice, but uh, that's where the question is coming from. Uh, is she a delight? Is, does she give you, again, you as in any journalist, what you're looking for? Is she a little short with press or, you know, is she good on courts? Because sometimes the story gets lost, the courts become the story. Uh, old-fashioned, you know, you always need a player's quote after the match. Uh, How is Maria's relationship with the press, in your view? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, we'll go go back to this, just another player because you want to touch on the last thing. I was going to throw out the name also, Robert Ferrer, who just came back, uh, you know, essentially no ban for him. And he was, of course, you know, part of the world number one doubles team. And it was a complex case where um, he had eaten a meal. I think there was uh, something in the beef in the meal that he ate that was prepared by his mother, um, so that was looked at, and essentially he was he was able to come back and return. But on to Sharapov, I I I had no problem at all. I really enjoyed her her press conferences. I uh, I enjoyed the way or respected the way that she interacted with the with the media. I mean, you ask her a question, and overwhelmingly majority of the time she's going to give you an answer. She's going to think about what she tells you. She's going to give you a thoughtful answer. So um, for me, it was always a pleasure interacting with her, listening to her press conferences. Um, so no, no problem. No problem at all. I mean, uh, you know, some players, uh, be it on the men's or women's side, press conference happens and, you know, you're, you're not going to get much out of the player and you kind of know that going going into things. But with Sheriff Puffin, no, she gave you, uh, gave you the, the answers um, when she was asked the questions. Yeah, so that, that's... Uh... That's what I expected, but again, uh, I haven't been in any press room with Maria and uh, uh, haven't also, followed. Yeah. <laughs> also, Sakib, I'll say too that she's got a she's got a she's pretty she'll be pretty funny at times. You know, people don't know that, but she can be pretty funny at times with her little her kind of dry sense of humor, um, little smile in her press conference. So she's she's got that in her in her locker as well. Okay, fair enough. So let's uh, let's go back from where it started. She became a brand, and again, uh, I don't know how closely you were watching back then. Uh, so the early 2000s when the paths are crossing, Kornikova is on her way out or fizzling out, uh, and then Sharapova is the new uh, the new sensation. And again, you know, the shameless uh, aspect of the tabloid media and, you know, the story became about, you know, the blonde bombshell and, you know, the sex symbol and whatnot. And even, and I never considered myself casual even back then. This is the before Tennis Channel has been launched. But even in my circle, you know, and, I, and I'm guilty as charged, people did say, oh, at least she's focused more on tennis without really knowing her well or Kornikova well. And, you know, because that's what media was feeding us. It was about their looks. And I yeah. was as guilty, you know. I was always for the tennis, but I say at least she seems more focused. So yeah. what's your reaction, you know, of the journey, uh-huh. how it started and was she treated fairly and was anyone treated fairly when the object becomes you know non-tennis uh you know character characteristics well that can be that can be difficult for players and you mentioned kornikova kornikova is, is a player whose career took a real hit because of injuries i think people sometimes forget about that how many injuries she had in her career and ultimately that's what you know that that's what sent her career spiraling was because of the injury so um you know, a lot of the Russian players in the past, if you listen to them talk about Sharapova, nothing but the utmost of respect for, for pardon me, but for Kornikova in terms of what she did for the game. And I think sometimes when you're when you're a player, um, you know, you're at an age, you know, 20s or even late teens, and maybe sometimes you don't you don't think about the big picture. And it's understandable, you know, if, for example, there was a couple of years ago and Caroline was talking about she wasn't very happy about a particular court assignment that, you know, Sharapova was on a big court at the U.S. Open, and she was on an out of court. But um, you know, 
players like a Sharapova, what they do is they, they really drive interest in the game. Uh, and w- if we take that one step further, what happens? That drives uh, sponsorship. And then if you you know take that one one step further, what happens? Well, it, it, it leads to prize money, right? So, I mean, I think people have to have that a little bit of sense of perspective when it comes to players like Sharapova that um, at the time, maybe some of them, May not like the fact, oh, you know, Maria's getting all this attention, and I maybe I want to, I want some of that attention. But the bottom line, end result, is the fact that um, with all the interest that she has, that she drives, and the people want to, you know, piece of her in terms of sponsorships. That's only good for tennis. Is there? Is there? Is there? Yeah, is there I mean, you're definitely onto something. Sorry, I mean, hundred yeah, yeah. percent agree. Star yeah, power yeah. is good because it, it's yeah. going to bring more eyes. In Maria's case, she has drawn, you know, a lot of non-tennis fans, and you know, and you've seen at these crowds, you know. I've been going to the Open for 17 years, and yeah. Maria Sharapova was mixed double match. You know, that's the year is 2000, I think four, and uh, she was in the same court as Mahesh Bhupati and I think Martina Navratilova. I forget who the fourth player was, and someone in the crowd yelled, "Will you marry me?" I'd never, I've heard that kind of, you know, chant on TV with Steffi and some other players, but again, you know, I'm a little bit of purist. That time I was annoyed. Why is someone even saying this? And Maria yeah. was very young. Again, you know, don't don't you know, I'm. Could be a little old-fashioned, but she definitely brings that element of the crowd, like which wouldn't watch a tennis match or uh, maybe you know a mixed doubles match. But you know she yeah. has the star power. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I, I just wanted I, to flag that out. Yeah, star power is good, but the way. Yeah, I think, but I think I think what you it was interesting what you just said there, Saka, because you said at that time, and this is probably 15, 16, 17 years ago. At that time, you're wondering, hey, what's this fan saying? You weren't a fan of it, but now. You can kind of appreciate that, and that's what I was just talking about—the the big perspective, the maturity. As you get older, I think you you realize these things a bit more. It's it's harder when you're younger, I think, at times, for players maybe to be in that situation where you know they're doing well on the court and thinking, oh, you know, why am I playing on this quarter, or you know, why is it, why does anybody want to talk to me? I, I I do understand that, and it's it's a difficult thing. You know, it's um, media is, is is interesting in terms of how they latch on to certain certain people, certain stories, etc. But if we go back to what you asked in the first place and what you just touched on, yeah, you know, to have that perspective and looking back and thinking, wow, you know, what what she was able to bring to the game, uh, bring people into tennis uh, because of her, uh, that that's, I mean, that's that's a thumbs up. And uh, no discussion would be complete if we don't bring the grunting here. I mean, what's your after Maria's grunting and, you know, the coverage around it, uh, any, any views on that before? Uh, I mean, it's so, you know, it's for me, I think of that topic and it's so passe. That's the word I would use. I mean, it's get on with it. it just, you know, people grunt, people grunt. Yes. Some are allowed another people grunt on the men's side, on the women's side. Uh, it happens, you know, deal with it really. You know, I, I'm a tennis player. I, I've, um, I face players who, who, who grunt pretty loud. Uh, I face others who don't grunt, and uh, it doesn't affect me. So but that's just me. Uh, but you know, you just have to learn to to get on with it, really. Fair enough. And before we wrap this up, you know, no conversation about Maria, even though this is some sort of a summary of her career. Uh, some may think it's a tribute. Some may think we are going easy. I don't know. This wasn't planned, but you know, we need to talk about her. She's such a prominent player. But no conversation is complete without bringing Serena Williams, and they've shared a very you know complex you know, on court or, you know, whatever has gone even beyond court. Uh, some even question if it's a rivalry. I'm of the opinion, you know, it may not be a traditional rivalry where two players have an equal say in the outcome. But I think Serena's, you know, clean record of never losing to Sharapo again, to me, that's like the on-court respect that Serena saying, okay, you know what, I'm not going to lose. And that's 
and that to me forms some sort of a rivalry. Yeah, mathematically, it's a mismatch. People even joke about it, but there's something that Maria brought to the court and Serena made sure I'm not going to lose to her again, or you know, at least the numbers don't lie. It hasn't happened since the year in championships in, I think, L.A. in 2004, uh, yeah. you know, succeeding that Wimbledon win. So how do you see this as a rider? Is there a rivalry? Could the rivalry be just because the two biggest stars? Tennis-wise, you know, we all know Maria came, you know, at the wrong end, you know, more than a few times, and a lot of time it, it seemed very one-sided. Your views? Yeah. Um, every time uh, Sharapova and Serena play, I know that, um, you know, whether doing a match um, on broadcast or, or writing about it, which I've done many times, there's always a great amount of interest. So um, whether you want to call it a rivalry, I know that when that word is brought up, people on social media will, will say, uh, listen, what rivalry? I mean, Serena has got this in the bag. I mean, it's, it's not even close. So why are you calling it a rivalry? And I, I do understand that. I think then when we're looking at the matchups, how much interest it creates you know there's a lot of hype that's the word i would use a lot of hype whenever they go into one of their matches because of you know because of how big personalities they are i mean serena obviously is the the player who's won a you know heck of a lot more grand slams and not even close than than maria they both transcended the sport but at the same time you know you know they're not the best of friends that's not you know that's not contentious that's just the way it is you know there's been issues with you know, players in the past they've dated etc there was actually one time and I can't recall the year, but there was a, a little spell. I can remember um, Maria saying it where there appeared to be a bit of a thaw between them and they got to know each other a little bit. But then that kind of, again, that disappeared. Uh, so if you if you factor in all these things into the mix in the, in the, into the equation, obvious, it's obvious why when people when they play, it's going to be uh, people who are, are going to take an interest because these are two of the biggest uh, athletes in the world. They're, we're not just talking about tennis. So yes, when when they do play, um, it's going to attract the kind of um, interest that I, I think it uh, it merits. So that's for me um, what we say about them head to head rivalry and on court results and what's happened in their matches and the way Serena has has really um, had that uh, record in the bag. Um, that's another story in itself. But uh, you you kind of touched on it too. When Serena has played Maria. She knows the competitor that Maria is, and I think she knows she always has to bring the you know her 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 close to her A game to win. I think she's she never ever ever you know is going to you know lack any motivation facing uh, uh, Maria, and it shows in in her record what she's been able to do against Sharapova over the years. And, uh, and for the sake of not repeating myself, yeah, definitely uh, you know head to head wise, it's not it's not even close. But at the same time, all the Serena fans watch this match, all the Maria fans watch this match, even the Tennis fans want this match. So to me, that's there's something about this. You know, yeah, you, you may not make it an Adal Djokovic rivalry or the Big Three rivalry, you know, or even Becker Edberg rivalry from the past, but it's still a rivalry. You know, it draws people to TV sets. It draws people to the scoring app if they're not watching, and that's what you know this matchup did. And, yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it, it it brings it, it brought. You mentioned you know Serena Camp, the Maria Camp, the tennis camp, but then more maybe most importantly. This is the non-tennis camp. The non-tennis fan was watching this match or taking an interest in who won the match. Yeah, and, and in that regard, Maria's reach is right up there with Big Three and Serena and maybe some players in the past like Agassi, you know, or, you know, in my opinion, Becker, you know, that reach to a market that's beyond tennis. And yeah. so Maria's reach, and I've seen it up close at US Open, you know, she's a big draw. I mean, again, I'm not trying to, you know, to say something new here. Uh, that's a very, I think, uh, known observation that, you know, her stardom... Uh, 
Yeah, stardom has been there, and uh, that's maybe that's maybe the point where some fans of other players get offended that you know her achievements are slightly less, her game maybe a little monotonous, you know. Uh, but uh, I'm I'm going to save some of these questions for Boris Sopkin too, who's the yeah. next guest. But uh, part, on, on parting okay. note, sorry, go I'm ahead. Saying, you're having Boris, and I'm I'm looking forward to listening to that because the one thing I'm thinking about Boris is. You know, one of the longest um, coaching player partnerships ever. Him and, and Mikhail Yuzhny, I think that, that was just amazing. Yeah, if, if we can get get him on, you know, he did say he'll, he'll come on in the next few minutes. I'll get ready for work and then, you know, put the microphone back on. But yeah, headset back on. But yeah, Boris is someone, you know, who, who, who's also uh, not known to pull any punches, you know. Uh, again, a legendary coach. Yeah, so I want to get his perspective on Sharapova, how she's consumed through the Russian lens because... You know, following the tour, it's. I mean, she did, does get along with all the Russian players. I think Pavlichenkova and Sveta Kuznetsova. All these people have only respect, like you said. But it, it'll be it'll be just nice to hear from Boris to add to what you've said. It's. it's uh, uh, I think we covered quite a ground. I think it's. Uh, it's. It's facts and some opinions, but that's what this kind of a, of a podcast or assessment can be. And yeah, uh, yeah I think uh, too, Saki. But you know, you just mentioned there Pavlichenkova. If you go on Twitter, um, look at the very, very, very nice message Pavly Chankova uh, wrote to Sharapova. There was also a great message that was uh, done by Karen Hachanov, um, the Russian men's uh, men's player. So there, a lot of the players, the Russian players, have really paid Maria a heck of a lot of respect. Right, so, again, uh, something little, you know, not controversial, but you think uh, with Meldonium, some of the bigger names have also distanced even though you know she served her time and came back again, this is purely opinion-giving exercise. You think, uh, or, or sometimes we we think these players are not reaching out to each other on Twitter, but they I'm sure they have each other's cell number. But the output of the messages for someone as big as Maria Stratcher hasn't been you know as evident if someone else retired. I mean, there have been more than few retirements and players on both tours come together. Uh, I'm sure WTA is going to do a video if they already haven't done it. But do you think just because of Meldonium, there's some distance? Uh, again, uh, just a viewpoint, well, not a fact. I, uh, I mean, judging by by some of the things that have been said about her by her by her fellow pros, no, I mean, I'm not. I, I think I'm not surprised by by what's come out and and the degree to which uh, that you know she's been getting you know a lot a lot of the, the respect from her fellow players. I mean, Novak says something very very nice about her. You know, there was that famous picture on social media just a couple of months ago when it was what her it was her Rafa and Novak on a on that golf cart uh, in the exhibition heading into 2020. And again, Novak paying huge respect to her after her announcement was um, was made. And I think because people realize people realize what she's in her legacy and what she's left in on the sport of tennis, and that is a heck of a lot. When you when you fast forward 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And you reflect on some of the champions in tennis on the men's and the women's side. Um, you know, Maria Sharapova is one of the names that's going to that's going to really come out. It's going to come out and it's going to stay with you because of not only the transformation that she made in her game, for example, winning those French Open titles, winning five Grand Slam titles, but also because of what she uh, has done off the court and how much interest she garnered in the game. And this, that's that's indisputable. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to end this discussion, Ravi, and uh, thanks for doing this. And uh, hopefully anyone who tunes in can chime in with an opinion if you disagree with what was said here or what we missed. But anyway, thanks for joining, Ravi, and thanks everyone who will be listening to this podcast. Share it with your friends, and then we'll be back with another episode soon. And yeah, uh, there's another segment to this, uh, so don't 
turned the podcast off yet. Uh, be prepared to listen to the next segment. Thank you. Hello, everyone. We have the honor of uh, getting Boris Sopkin uh, from Moscow uh, to talk about Maria Sharapova. The career just ended last week. Welcome to the show, Boris. How are you? Good. Thank you. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, you, you've been on the tour uh, with coaching and you're know, involved in Russian tennis. So, uh, how, how big is Sharapova in Russia? How is she? Is she still seen as Russian? I know she lives in the U.S., plays for Russia. How big is Sharapova in Moscow? I tell you, Sharapova and uh, let's say Sharapova, because normally in Russian it sounds Sharapova. You know, she she is great. There are a lot of fans uh, which really love her, you know. And uh, mainly people support her. But of course there are some people who say that she is not Russian because she is American, like this, you know. But uh, it's uh, just a few people, you know, because everybody understands what is going on and uh, that's why ev- almost everybody loves her, honestly. Okay, so you coach a lot of players. We all know that last time you were in the podcast, we talked about Kefelnikov, Chesnikov, mm-hmm. Safin, everyone. So when you look at Sharapova's game, you think the game style is more American or you think, like most Russians have a great backhand. Do you see any similarity? Does she play like some of the Russian girls like Kuznetsova or Miskina or Dementieva or do you think her ground strokes and point construction is very different? I tell you, I tell you, of course, of course, uh, let's let's uh, talk about what, you know, first of all, in the beginning, she had really good uh, Russian uh, kids coach. He gave her pretty good technique. So the best skills she got in Russia. And the coach was really good one. So unfortunately now, as far as I know, he is dead already. So, But uh, after that, the main part of her uh, career, I mean, not career, professional career, but junior's career. She practiced uh, in uh, Boletieri Tennis Academy. So that's why, that's why, of course, of course, uh, her game was built there. But again, the technique, all this stuff, she got in Russia, in Sochi, with really good juniors coach. But uh, according to her style, you know, now, honestly, honestly, tennis are becoming more and more international, you know. Look at Spanish guys, you know, like some years ago, everybody talked, oh, this is Spanish, you know. But now look uh, at Spanish guys and, uh, and uh, look, for example, at another player f- from Europe, for example, you know, uh, Jan Lennar Struff or Kohlschreiber, can you say that they play uh, European tennis or you play German tennis or you play Spanish tennis? Now, tennis is uh, much more international, you know. That's why I cannot say if she has Russian skills, if she has American skills. I don't believe in American skills. I don't believe in Russian skills. I believe in good skills and bad skills. You know? Yeah, I mean, maybe my question was not good. What I was trying to say is most Russian players, like we talked two years ago, have a great backhand, be it Kuznetsova, Dementieva, Marat Safin. So I think that's where I was saying. 
Uh, I tell you, I tell you, the main problem, the main problem uh, of Russian tennis, let's say probably at about Soviet tennis, about Soviet Union tennis, the main problem of all players in Soviet Union was surf. Because uh, unfortunately to say, but uh, we had no really good school about surf. Of course, every coach knows what he has to do with the surf, how it should be, you know, the motion, technique, everything. But the problem is, you know, one part you have to know, but second part you have to use this knowledge. So that's why that's why I think in Soviet school, uh, let's say the m- most difficult part of the game was surf. I cannot say that backhand, for example, or forehand. Of course, for example, Chesnokov's forehand was uh, not that good as his backhand. But, uh, uh, for example, Kafelnikov's forehand was pretty good, you know. And I cannot say that Safin was uh, a bigger backhand than forehand. So I don't think in, 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 in the past always, you know, like, Maybe 15 years ago, when Misha plays against Czech player, I said, if and if I didn't know him, I always said, Misha, look, he's from Czech school, so backhand should be much more better than forehand. But now again, you know, I cannot say I cannot say that uh, in Russian school or let's say in Soviet school, forehand was worse than backhand. You know, in generally, I tell you, in generally. It's well known that uh, to build good forehand is much more difficult than to build good backhand because backhand is more natural. That's why maybe uh, you think like this, you know. Okay, fair enough. So let's talk about Maria a little more. So Sharapova, as you said, uh, you think uh, winning French Open twice before, because in the beginning of her career, she could not really move that well on clay. You think, is that her biggest achievement, winning two French Opens? I tell you, I tell you, uh, for me, I, I tell you, uh, Raral Garros or French Open, it's the most difficult tournament for everybody. There is one maybe exception, it's Nadal. <laughs> he loves it and he feels like, we say, fish in the water there. But, uh, to win Roland Garros is much more difficult. I always honestly hate Roland Garros because there was much more nerves because the matches are longer and you have to sit longer and to beat any player on, on clay in five sets, it was a tough story, you know. But of course, of course, her game was more offensive and for her it's really good achievement, but I don't, I cannot say, let's say, that is her greatest achievement. But were you surprised when she won the French Open? Let's put it this way, because... Not really, not really, honestly, because, you know, she plays on baseline. She played on baseline, unfortunately, to say, now we have to say in the past, you know, but uh, she plays on baseline, you know. If she played like, uh, for example, Boris Becker, you know, or Stefan Edberg, okay, in this case, it's another story. But uh, she played on baseline. Of course, she played more aggressive, you know, 
much more power. That's why that's why it was much more mistakes. But anyway, uh, when you play on baseline, when you have good baseline, it's no problem to win Roland Garros. Okay. It's much more problem to win Wimbledon in this case. Yeah, uh, the game has definitely changed. So one more thing again, uh, I've had another guest talk about Sharapova. So I will get your opinion. You think uh, the testing uh, on Meldonium? You think that diminishes her legacy? Uh, she tested positive for a banned I drug. I tell you, I tell you, I, I tell you, I hate this story about Meldonium because I am hundred percent sure, hundred percent sure, hundred one percent sure that Meldonium is not doping. You know, I know a lot of things about Meldonium. You know, and uh, actually. One year ago, I take Mildonion because of heart problems, you know. So I know everything about this medicine. It's not uh, doping, you know, because in other countries there are the similar medicine and uh, it's not doping, you know. I think it's more politics in this thing. This is my opinion. No, because, because she's Russian. But, but, <laughs> but, 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 there is one big but. When in November, and uh, when in November they decided that is prohibited, she must completely stop to do this. This was her only one mistake. I mean, that she missed that it became prohibited because the previous year, the previous year, it was under control by Vada, you know, and the doctor of our team. We spoke with him a lot, and he told us, be careful, because now it's under, uh, let's say, observating by WADA, and it's good possibility that it will be prohibited. And in, in November, we knew that it's prohibited. This was her biggest mistake, her staff mistake, I mean, uh, people who was responsible for her health, you know, this was big mistake. Because when it became prohibited, of course, you have to stop immediately. Okay, so you're saying it was more also bad luck because the timing of it? Is... Yes, it was. It was. I, I tell you again, it wasn't bad luck. It was big mistake. Why its mistake happened? I don't know. I don't know how it was organized in her team, you know. So you, you, is this... Me and Misha, I tell you, in our team, it was the rule, you know. Every end of the year, we consult with the doctor what we can take, what we don't uh, have to take, what is prohibited. You know, we always checked it and we were really careful about WADA, you know, because it's really important. I understood. I understood that I don't know anything about it because I have technical education. So I have no glue about medicine. But there was a doctor. We always consult about him, what we can take, what we cannot take, you know. That was her, again, big mistake. It wasn't bad luck. It was bad system in her medicine team. Okay. So, again, uh, the people who listen to this podcast, are, I, I believe, I don't know who else is listening, but mostly, you know, English speaking because it's an English podcast. But how has the Russian media reacted to the story? Uh, are they also on the same page like you that she was treated... Or oh, this was like a big mistake. How is the story? I, I know it's you, an old story. In Russia, in Russia, all media, of course, on her side. And the problem is, the problem is, the Mildonium was really popular. 
like among sportsmen because it helps to recover and that's why that's why when it's become prohibited when it's became prohibited let's say you know everybody were surprised but there were two different kind of sportsmen one of them knew about this and stopped immediately who did it and one of them didn't care about this you know that's that was the problem you know but i think again you know there are I, I know for sure there are many similar medicine uh, producing outside, let's say, former Soviet Union, because I tell you, this medicine, I mean, Mildonium, I don't know if you know or not, it was uh, the, designed in Latvia. And uh, the, the guy who did it, he lives in Latvia, not actually in Russia. And he gave a lot of interview and he explained why it's not doping and so on. So And he explained that there are similar uh, medicines using still until now, you know. That's why uh, from, let's say, Russian side, it's the politics and nothing more. Okay, so last question on Maria before we start talking about Misha Yuzni. Where would you rank Maria in the last 20 years of champions? I know Serena is number one. Uh, where do you rank Maria compared to, say, Justine Anna, Kim Kleisters, or, oh, or Venus Williams? You know, I ne- honestly, uh, I never do it. I never do it because uh, the question is, the question is, when you do number one, number two, number three, you have to have clear criterion why it's number one. For example, in ATP Tour, there are system of points, you know, who has much more points, you know, he's number one and so on, you know. I don't see the system how how to say who was number one, who was number two, who was number three, you know. So it's really tough. Again, who is the better one? Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, everybody uh, answering this question, uh, everybody who, who loves Nadal says Nadal. Everybody who loves Federer says Federer, you know. What is the criterion, you know? Maybe maybe Lever is the big the biggest one because he won two Grand Slams in one year. Nobody uh, did it after him, you know. But again, what you take for criterion, you will have this uh, the system of ranking, you know. So that's why I cannot do this, and I never uh, do this, you know, because uh, if you don't have clear criterion how to do it, you are just you know. Uh, saying nothing. Sure, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult exercise, you're right. So let's talk about Federer. Uh, he's mm. just did have a surgery. So again, uh, you know, he was playing good tennis coming into Australia. So how do you see at this age, you know, another surgery, you think he will be, uh, he'll be a good factor again when he comes back around Wimbledon? Or you think surgery, surgery is tough? <laughs> you know, you know, uh, there are a lot of people, even maybe five years ago, you know, said that Federer is dead, he will never play good, you know, he will never win, you know. Federer is an extension, I tell you. Uh, For him, I really cannot say what is going on, you know. First of all, how, let's say, tough was surgery. Because I don't know anything. I didn't speak with him Before surgery, I didn't speak with him about uh, after surgery. So I really don't know what kind of surgery was it. Second of all, uh, you know, Federer shows many times that he is not the same like others. So 
in this case, I cannot say anything, you know, because for me it's really strange that he is playing such level at his age, you know. But with him, with him, I don't know what to say. You know, maybe next ten years he will play on the same level. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so last uh, last topic here, Misha Yuzni, your your charge for all those years is now coaching Danish Shapovalov. Are you in uh-huh. touch with him? How impressed are you that Misha, what Misha is able to do? I'm in touch with him. I'm, I'm in touch with him every day, you know. And uh, of course, of course, he always asks me about, I always give him advices, what I think. He always consults with me what to do because he's, Misha is really smart, you know, really smart, clever. So that's why he understands uh, that his experience is pretty good, but this is experience of player. I always said before, I mean, that uh, player and coach, it's absolutely different uh, occupation. So you can be greatest from the great, like player, and you cannot be a coach. And uh, the same story, you maybe be average player, of course, you have to play tennis before, otherwise you cannot be a coach. But you can be really average player, but you can become a great coach. So this is, and Misha understands this, and no, but now Misha is doing a really good job. He does everything in the right way. He understands what to do first, what to do second. And the main thing, you know, he knows how to do it. Because many people can watch a player and say, oh, he he has mistakes for his backhand, his backhand is not clear, you know, the motion is not clear. Many people can see, but just a few people can do for exactly this player to do something to become this motion better, you know. You it's not enough to know that something is wrong. You have to know how to do it better, you know. And Misha knows. It, and uh, he knows what is first, what is second, you know. Is there, uh, he, is there anything in Shapovalov's game that you like, you think, or what Misha has already changed? Has... I like it. Honestly, honestly, I spoke with his mother uh, maybe first time three years ago or two years ago before she called me and asked me to speak with Misha about this, you know, so we talk a lot about his game and uh, I gave her some advices, you know, about technique, about all all this stuff, you know, we were in touch uh, some years before, you know, Misha started, but uh, now, now we know, I mean, Misha and of course me, because I'm involved in this, you know, uh, we know what kind of game he has, what kind of personality he has. But the question is, of course, there are a lot of things to improve. But the question is, again, what is first, what is second, what is third, you know. If you try to do improve everything, you will improve nothing, you know. But I, I like his game. There are not too many players which I like actually the game, you know. One of them is Sapovalov, for sure. So you think all these young guys, Shapovalov, Sitsipas, Oji Aliasim, how much time should we give them as fans? Two, three years, maybe more, because they're still very young before they can winning majors. I tell you, I tell you, I tell you, I tell you. 
Nobody knows. Only God knows how much time, because uh, it depends on many things, and no, not only uh, it depends on them, you know. Because uh, the competition is uh, modern tennis is really tough. And nobody wants to lose. Even player which ranking is 101 is not ready to lose to top 10 player. He will fight and under some conditions he can win, you know. So that's why I don't like uh, to look forward. You know, what is the main rule of mental health? Do you know what is the main rule of mental health? (laughs) (laughs) The main rule of mental health be right here and right now. Don't go too much in the past and don't go to the future, you know. That's why that's why I cannot say anything. I tell you, I really like the way like Tsitsipas play. I really like the way like Shapovalov play. I think uh, Oje Aysim is really good one, you know. He also can play good. There, we have to speak about what kind of game he's playing, you know. But again, he can play, for my opinion, he can play much more better. You know, so, and other young players, there are not only them, you know, there are some other players. They are on the top now, but... Sasha, Sasha Zverev. Uh, don't forget, yes, that's what I wanted to say. Don't forget about Sasha Zverev, because he came earlier than them, you know, and everybody sometimes forgot about him, you know. But he is still in top 10, you know, and he, and he there is a lot of things he can improve, you know. So that's why... That's why there are and Medvedev, and let's say to say right, Medvedev, as we say, he is also really good one, you know. So there are many good players. There is a good competition between them, but uh, at the moment nobody knows. For example, you know, two three years ago nobody hear about Medvedev, you know. Even in Russia they say, ah, he's <laughs> not a player, you know. But now Medvedev is the best Russian player. So the same could happen. Today Today maybe player A plays much better. Everybody say, ah, he, he will win the first, uh, he will be the first who win Grand Slam from new generation. But tomorrow the situation could be changed, you know. So that's why I, I don't like uh, to think about who will be first, who will be second, you know. For sure, sure it happens. It happens. Because, uh, of course, of course, nobody, uh, you know, plays right. forever. All right, Boris, so but that that was, yeah, go ahead. I, Sorry, I don't want to cut you off. No, no, okay. no, no. No, I think this, this is good. So, yeah, I know I only requested five or ten minutes. We did more than 20 minutes. Thank you for doing this. So, I'll record this and uh, publish soon. My pleasure. My pleasure.